Welcome to everybody. My name's Roger Liddell. Um, I'm, for my sins, a visiting fellow at the European Institute at this great institution. Um, uh, and I'm also, uh, which is the context in which I'm here today, um, Vice Chair of Policy Network, uh, which is a uh, center-left progressive think tank uh, trying to uh, encourage debate uh, about progressive policy options uh, among Europeans, Americans, and other people around the world. Now, um, Tony Giddens and I have uh, followed uh, very diverse paths. I spent most of my uh, life in uh, politics, messing around on the fringe of politics, uh, writing policies for political parties that never got elected. Um, he uh, he uh, spent his life uh, being a great uh, sociological theorist, you know, talking about structuration and issues like that. And I remember well the occasion when our paths first crossed, as it were, was uh, uh, when I walked into the um, uh, German Chancellor's office. I was working for Tony Blair, that's what I did after the 97 election. I walked into the newly elected German Chancellor's office, Chancellor Schroeder, and there on Schroeder's desk, was a copy of Giddens' Third Way, and I thought, gosh, that means that this is the path uh, I should be following. Um, I have to say it didn't do Schroeder much good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what we then did was we established this bo body called Policy Network uh, uh, to uh, promote Third Way ideas, uh, and uh, Tony has, uh, since his retirement as LSE director, uh, has done a lot of work with us, and it's been a very uh, enjoyable uh, partnership. We, uh, uh, we did a great project together on the European social model, uh, and now uh, we're doing a project, a big project, uh, on the politics uh, of climate change. Uh, and Tony has taken the intellectual lead uh, on both these subjects. And they tend to be based on a very simple idea, um, the European Social Model Project was based on the simple idea uh, that when you looked at the constitutional referenda votes in France and the Netherlands in 2005, which you know, stopped the process of European integration in its tracks at political level, uh, that in fact you should be looking at the economic and social roots of why uh, people uh, were discontented uh, with uh, the European ideal. And on climate change, I think we've come up, or Tony has come up with, another very simple idea, which is that all the political attention uh, focuses on getting international agreements as the way of dealing uh, with climate change. But in fact, what we ought to be doing uh, is concentrating, particularly in the developed world, on the politics of how we secure consent to the changes uh, that we have to make. So that's why I'm here working with Tony on this, pro on this uh, project on climate change and that's what he's going to talk about today in the context of energy and the financial crisis. So it's an extremely uh, topical uh, lecture that I'm looking forward to uh, and then we'll have a good question session afterwards. Tony Giddens. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I said to Roger, 
will you give a really, really brief introduction? Well, actually, it was quite a long one, but it was a very good one, and I hope it sets the background for what I'm going to talk about today. Can I first of all say what a pleasure it is to be um, back at the LSE, and especially to be on stage in this uh, wonderful new building, for which, Roger, I can claim an itsy-bitsy little bit of credit, because when I was director of the LSE, we started a fundraising campaign to raise 100 million pounds. By the time I left, we did raise 60 million pounds. The LSE did raise the other 40 million, this building, um, all the lecture halls within it, and a lot of the other improvements that you might see at the LSE are the result of this fundraising exercise. I'd also like to congratulate the LSE, really, on having established this literary festival which has drawn people from far and wide across the country. I think it's a great innovation, and I do hope that it becomes an annual event at the LSE. That having been said, um, I don't really have any literary pretensions, and what I'm going to talk about in my speech today is the intersection, essentially, of, of three crises. The first, uh, as Roger has mentioned, is familiar to everybody, and that's the crisis of recession. The recession we're facing looks deep, it looks dangerous, and it is truly global. No one knows at the moment whether recession will turn to depression. If it does, as I, again, I, suppose, I think everyone here will know, um, it's even more dangerous. It'll be even deeper in, in the um, situation in the 1930s, the output of the industrial countries, in some case, cases dropped by about 20%, which was a massive amount of retrenchment to cope with. So we certainly have to hope we can avoid that scenario, but it looks difficult, not just for this year, not just for next year, for an unknown period, really, into the future. Now, there's always a bright side to all these things, and sort of one of the bright sides of, um, of the recession is that we've now got quite a lot of new investment banker jokes. I'm not, I'm not sure how great they are, but I'll try out one or two of them on you. What is the difference between an investment banker and a pigeon? A pigeon can still lay down a deposit on a Ferrari. Ha <laughs> Thank you. You can see just like Laurel and Hardy, we're an established comedy act. Us too. It was quite a good cartoon actually in the, um, one of the papers yesterday which had a feature of the sign on the wall and it said, look out. Investment bankers have been known to operate in this area. <laughs> and then you've got the convergence of the term investment banker and gangster. So now people are talking of banksters to refer to investment bankers. And what better bankster to refer to than Sir Fred Goodwin? What do you make of his, his retirement fund of £693,000 per year? The 3,000 must come in, very useful. 
I mean, that's a joke, isn't it? I mean, that, that in the case is more of a sick joke, but it's an extraordinary situation where you've got somebody who's being paid this massive amount of money. God knows what you do with £693,000 per year. It's being paid out of public money since the public have, have rescued the Royal Bank of Scotland, of which he was previously the boss and which were, was brought to his knees under his, uh, his stewardship. And he's 50 years old, therefore he could claim his £693,000 for, I suppose, 40 years to come, all paid for by you lot as well as me, because if you're not taxpayers yet, you will be paying Sir Fred's retirement fund at some point in the future. Well, I'll come back to Sir Fred at the end of my lecture, because I do want to say one or two other things about him, or about the situation which he... I, I don't want to get sued, so I'd better say the situation which his difficult position exemplifies, let me put it that way. So we have to ask what is the impact of recession against the backdrop of the other, I think, quite tumultuous crises which our civilization is facing. Three crises, as I've said. The second crisis, which is masked by the recession, which is masked by the situation of economic downturn, um, is the crisis of energy especially energy supply and especially oil supply. Uh, it might also apply to natural gas on which this country and many other countries are very dependent. Um, there's a massive dispute, again as you may or may not know, going on about when we have reached peak oil in the world. Peak oil is the time at which half of the known available oil reserves will have been used up. Now many people claim, and they're, they're, to my mind, acute and knowledgeable writers, that we may only be three or four years off peak oil. Once you've used up half the oil in the world, the only way visibly is down, and the only way for oil prices visibly is up and steeply we don't really know when peak oil will actually hit us. But what we do know uh, comes from a recent report of the International Energy Agency. The International Energy Agency is the major agency which charts the uh, oil supplies in the world. And the IEA's most recent report argued that even without peak oil, leave alone completely the debate about peak oil, we simply won't have enough oil to fuel a new process of economic development, especially if it's global economic development involving China and India, for very specific reasons. Those reasons are that most oil today is not produced by private corporations who tend to invest quite a lot, actually, in new technology. Most is now owned by states. About 93% of total oil production in the world is now owned by governments. Many of those governments are in poorly administered countries. They don't invest much in technology. Russia is a very good example. Um, Euro the European Union very heavily dependent on Russia, especially for gas and to a lesser extent for oil. The Russians have sweated the assets essentially in their quest to become a great power. 
as a consequence not enough has been invested to get enough oil out of the ground to effectively fuel a renewal of economic development certainly in the medium term the IEA says so this is a, a, a second highly significant structural problem for our society and you could say also for our civilization um, because the, the civilization in which we live, the global civilization in which we live today is a heavily oil driven civilization um, well over 90% of all transportation in the world whatever means it might be by plane or by car or um, even by train um, is oil driven about 90% of the manufactured goods in the shops depend upon oil in one sense or another this is as George Bush said it he said it of America but it's true of our civilization in general this is a civilization which is addicted to oil so a key question for us in the future is can we break the grip of oil can we move beyond an oil based civilization and there is a very strong inherent logic which would push us to try to do so for reasons that I'll go on immediately to discuss third, the third overlapping crisis well you know it from the title of the talk and what Roger said um, and that's the crisis of climate change um, climate change means essentially the same as global warming the fact that the earth's temperatures are warming up producing all sorts of potential and perhaps actual implications not just for our civilization as a whole but for our everyday lives well since part of this talk is about the politics of climate change I'd just like to try out one or two uh, questions on you the audience three, three things I'd just like to ask you because I've been doing a lot of research on what people's attitudes are to climate change based on the idea that there's tremendous gulf really between what seems to be a set of very real risks which I'll come on to in a moment very real risks not, not just for our children but for us ourselves and the fact that we are all geared to everyday routines which don't seem to change very much in the light of these risks in a minute I'll ask why that is so but a kind of uh, interaction with you the audience might sort of well be interesting for me anyway so first of all I'm going to read you out a statement and ask how many people um, agree with that statement goes as follows there is still considerable disagreement among scientists about whether or not global warming is produced by human activity and whether it is a serious threat to our lives can I just read that again there is still considerable disagreement among scientists about whether or not global warming is produced by human activity and whether it is a serious threat to our lives who would agree with that statement Well, it's interesting. That's a fair number. I would, I would put that at about a quarter of the audience, probably. It's not. I mean, this is a being LSE audience. I'm sure mostly it's a very learned and uh, well-informed audience. Therefore, the proportion of people who agree with the statement is less than among the general public. Among the general public, about um, most surveys, over 40% of people agree with the statement that the thesis that global warming 
is created by us, not by nature, and that it poses a serious threat to us. About 40% of the population um, think that there is not a scientific consensus around that issue. As I mentioned in a minute, there certainly is, for almost all purposes anyway, a scientific consensus about it, but if you don't really believe it, of course you're not going to do much in your everyday life to respond to it. Second question I'd like to ask you is, how many people in the audience believe they understand the mechanism that produces global warming, the mechanism whereby human activity um, produces climate change? How many people would say they understand what that mechanism is? Um, if you would, be careful before you answer it, because I'll probably pick on one of you <laughs> to explain to the rest of the audience what that mechanism is. How many people would say they do understand what the mechanism is? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to explain that? my understanding um, global warming is basically the excess of carbon dioxide being emitted to the atmosphere and therefore the atmosphere covering more heat into um, the earth and less heat which can expand to the atmosphere and to the universe and therefore the, the global planet is heating up more than it should be in an equilibrium state. Well, I'm going to reward him with a lectureship at the LSE. What do you think? <laughs> give, give him a little clap. <laughs> yeah, the mechanism is essentially that heat comes to the Earth from the sun. It's reflected back as infrared energy. Um, our climate is tolerable normally because clouds and other part of the atmosphere absorb some of the energy as it goes up, much like a greenhouse does. That's why it's called a greenhouse effect. But the introduction of a greater proportion of CO2 in the air, but also other greenhouse gases like methane, act to trap the heat more than was previously the case. And that's believed by, as I say, the vast majority of world scientists to be the reason why the Earth's climate is um, heating up or has been observed to heat up in a fairly consistent and well-charted way since the beginning of industrial civilization, which is about... 150 or so years ago. Can I just ask you one final question, just get your response. This is not an unnerving one, don't think, anyway. And it is, how many people have made major changes in their lives in this audience in response to the threat of climate change? And by major, I mean more than putting out the newspapers and other papers to be recycled. How many people? Well, I mean, it's not an awful lot, is it? And I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that in criticism because I think it's actually there is an enormous distance between us as ordinary everyday citizens and what seems to be a global threat which many of us can't really easily relate to. Um, just in case you're interested in what I've done, um, I have actually... Um, when I was at the LSE, I instituted a whole lot of new measures to insulate begin to insulate the buildings at the LSE, I don't know how far they've got, and to upgrade the environmental quality of the estate. I spent a lot of money on insulating my own home. You probably know that 
well over 40% of greenhouse gas emissions in this country, the UK, come from um, domestic dwellings and offices. We have about the worst um, housing stock in the whole of Europe in terms of um, um, greenhouse gas emissions because we've got a sort of temperate climate. So we don't protect ourselves against the sun and we don't protect ourselves against the cold. And British houses are very open, poorly insulated structures. Um, I also more or less stopped driving, go on public transport all the time and cut down on the numbers of plane trips I took. But as I like to say later on, I didn't think probably this is the way that you can tackle a massive global threat. There is and there will remain probably a big distance between people's everyday lives and the threats which we face. Let me just go on to say a bit about those threats. What, what is the status of, of climate change and global warming? in respect of the dangers which we face. Well, essentially you have three um, different forms of opinion on this issue. In relation to the first question I asked you, the, ma the vast majority of the world scientists, climate scientists and weather scientists, hold that climate change is real, that it does provide us with immense dangers for the future and that it is caused by human activity, namely by the uh, phenomena so ably described by the new lecturer at the LSE sitting at the end of the first row there and might attempt to follow up on what he said. Orthodox opinion on climate change is represented by the Intergovernmental Panel of the United Nations which is called the IPCC. The IPCC um, tries to gather together all the evidence that has been produced every year and there's masses of it on the increase in the world average temperatures and on the way in which this is distributed around the world. This is mainstream scientific opinion. You'd probably say you know, 90% of world scientists at least would endorse the overall themes of the IPCC. The IPCC says that climate change is here probably already it's almost certainly produced by human activity and if you look 20 or 30 years down the line the consequences for the world are positively cataclysmic. One of the main difficulties with climate change is not simply that temperature becomes elevated, is that you get much more extreme weather than ever you had in the past. So you can expect more floods, more droughts, more storms, more hurricanes, greater intensity storms in many parts of the world. It's a really frightening scenario to think that we are the first civilization that's ever been capable of systematically intervening in the world of nature in such a way as to alter its mechanisms, but that does seem to be the case. Second, against them, you have got people whose views will be the same as those who put up their hands in relation to agreeing to the quotation I read out. These are usually called the climate change skeptics. The climate change skeptics used to dispute that global warming was happening. Now they don't dispute it anymore because it's more or less indisputable. What they say is that it's not caused by human activity, that it's a natural phenomenon and natural cycles of, of global warming have happened at many times previously in history. That's what they argue. There are some scientists among them and there are some reputable scientists among them, so there is not a complete consensus. You're talking about future risk when you're talking about climate change. You're talking to some extent about 
an open future which no one can be certain about, so then I'll come back to a minute because it's really crucial to the politics of climate change that you're, you're dealing with a partly uncertain risk-based future, much less than you are with the present, even if it might affect the present. But most of the skeptics are probably, I would say, non-scientists. I don't know how many people here will know the book by Nigel Lawson, who is a previous Chancellor of Exchequer in this country. She's called An Appeal to Reason, uh, which is a, a prime case of a skeptical book which says that all the risks are exaggerated and we're worrying far too much. There are many other risks which are greater. As I say, there are some quite reputable authors who do believe that, but the large majority of the world's scientists do not believe it. The thing is, however, since you're talking about risk, for all those who say the risk is underestimated, you've got others, again, in this case they're nearly all scientists, who say the risk is underestimated, that the risks we face are much greater than the orthodox consensus or the IPCC view of the world says. A good example is the writer Fred Pierce, who's a writer for the New Scientist, but also James Lovelock, famous scientist, another representative of this school of thought, who say that the risks have been underestimated by the IPCC because the IPCC is essentially a conservative organization. It has to represent the body of the world's scientific opinion, therefore it has to be cautious. And they say the risks are more imminent, they're closer at hand. You look at the melting of the Arctic, it's proceeding at pace, for example. They say if the Antarctic melts, land-based ice melts, you could get a tremendous surge, rise in sea levels across the world. And they say that climate change in the past and probably in the future will happen in terms of tipping points. They say if you look at the geological past, when natural climate change has happened, it's usually happened very abruptly. It, there's a kind of threshold effect. So even within a period of 10 years, which is pretty frightening really, you could see a large-scale elevation of temperatures and a large-scale elevation of ocean levels across the world in the past, and they say this is likely to happen in the future. Should the ice suddenly fracture and melt on Antarctica, you could get a very sudden rise in world sea levels, which would essentially inundate cities in which hundreds of millions of people live around the world. Interestingly, these um, three schools of thought have um, like different views of the earth, although I don't know how you would adjudicate between them. Um, for the, the, the orthodox consensus on climate change, the earth is seen as a vulnerable entity. And I think for most people in the green movement, the earth is seen as something which we've damaged. We human beings have damaged a fragile ecosphere and so on which the earth has. For the second school of thought, the skeptics, the earth is essentially robust. Nothing we can do, according to them, is going to make much impact on it. We are insignificant compared to the, the size of the world's ecosystem. So the earth is a robust entity which we'll, we will have no impact on. Interestingly and somewhat disturbingly for the third school of thought, the earth is seen as like a wild beast. According to Fred Pierce, the earth is like a wild beast and what we're doing is pricking this beast with sticks and essentially it's going to, sooner or later, react violently to what we're doing to it. So according to the third school of thought, 
again, much, much more worry about the impact of human activity producing violence on the part of the Earth's climatic systems as a form of response. Very difficult to know exactly where to situate, situate yourself in relation to these three, but my conclusion, having gone through all the literature in detail, is that you have to take the ideas of the third school seriously. You cannot write off the possibility, at least, that climate change is advancing faster, is more radical, could potentially uh, occur through tipping points, which adds to the urgency of the issue. Now, if the issue is urgent, and if it is global, why are so few people doing nothing about it? What explains the gap between or we seem to stand on the edge of, of the civilization in which we live because essentially we live in an unsustainable civilization not just because of the advance of climate change but because we're running out of the fuel on which our civilization depends as I just said what explains the gap between um, people's everyday lives people getting on with their lives many nations, many national leaders not taking that much notice and what seems, so far as anyone who studies it can say, a very real and perhaps one of the most dangerous sets of threats that humanity has ever faced. So it's a very striking imbalance. I don't know how many people here went to um, Ulrich Beck's lecture, which I chaired on climate change the other night, but he had quite a vivid metaphor for this when he said, where, where is the storming of the barricades for the environmental movement, for climate change? Where is it? Because we're all getting on passively, it seems, with our lives in the face of an enormously disturbing future, exacerbated by the other crises which I've just mentioned. Well, I think that there is an answer to these questions, and, or a series of answers, and those answers really situate the politics of climate change. They explain why it's so difficult to get effective political responses to climate change and, to a lesser extent, energy security and energy scarcity in the world. And there are three such factors I'll briefly mention. The first of these, if you'll forgive me, um, I call Giddens's paradox. <laughs> Giddens's paradox states that climate change is a unique threat which you've never had to face before because it is based on abstract future risk. It's not, many people say to confront climate change we need to mobilize us to fight a war. But when you fight a war, you've got enemies. You know who your enemies are. They're visible. You can um, easily relate to the issues faced when you're fighting a war. In the case of climate change, there are no enemies to discern in that sense. And the risks we face are risks. They're not so much visible dangers. You can't say of any particular episode, including the recent massive forest fires and uh, brush fires in Australia, that they are inevitably and 100% sure the result of climate change. They probably are influenced by it, but we don't conclusively know. So Giddens' paradox states the following, that since most people can't relate to the abstract risks posed by climate change, since those risks don't intrude very far into their day-to-day -day lives, they therefore tend to push them for the most part to the back of their minds. Most citizens do this. Only about 15% of citizens in the industrial countries are activists as defined by my final question to you, people who are really trying to change their lives to try to react back on the, the causes of climate change. Only a very small minority are in that um, position. 
Um, Giddens' paradox is a paradox because um, since these risks are not really visible, you could argue that people will only respond to them, and nations and the international community will only respond to them effectively when they are visible in people's day-to-day -day lives. But once they are visible in people's day-to-day -day lives, it is far too late to be able to cope with them. Dealing with climate change risk is not like having a pile of dust in the corner of your room, which you can leave indefinitely to get round to, because once the greenhouse gas emissions go into the air, at the moment we know no way in which they can be extracted systematically, and they are likely to stay there for centuries. So if we sit around doing very little, as we are at the moment, then we're building up a potential future cataclysm. It's because of Giddens' paradox, I think, that politicians who have caught on to the dangers of climate change are, are talking about it a lot, but not doing nearly as much as one would hope they would. Politicians are quite happy talking about what they're going to do 50 years down the line, the targets they're setting for 2050, let's say. They're not so happy discussing what they're going to do over the next five years whether they stop building coal-fired power stations and so forth. Second, the second um, sort of major political issue for climate change um, is, is what social psychologists call future discounting. It's not just the fact that climate change risks are abstract, it's the fact that we find it very difficult to give the same degree of reality to the future as we do to the present. If you offer people relatively small gift in the near future, most will take it over a bigger gift often in the long-term future. An example of future discounting is why young people smoke. You see 16-year-olds, these days I think a higher proportion of girls than boys actually, standing around smoking, and you think, what on earth are they doing? Smoking produces massive rates of death and incapacity for people. It's warned clear enough on the packets what they're doing. Well, I think part of the reason is that when you're 16, it's incomprehensible that you'll ever be 40, that you'll ever be in a situation where you will suffer the consequences of your action. So our, our inability to give flesh to the future is one of the reasons why climate change risk still hovers uneasily in our lives, I think. Thirdly, and just as important as the others, there are fabulous problems of free riding in climate change um, politics, which we're really struggling to deal with nationally and internationally. I don't know if you know what free riding is, but I can explain it quite easily. If, let's say, a group of people in a neighborhood set up a neighborhood watch scheme, and everyone is charged, let's say, 500 pounds to participate in that scheme. Four or five people in the area or more might decide they're not going to participate, but the scheme goes ahead anyway. So they're getting their protection for nothing. They're essentially free riding off the majority of people who paid for the scheme. Well, free riding is everywhere in climate change. The person who buys a Prius hybrid car, does 65 miles to the gallon, so it's claimed anyway. It's free riding. Sorry, is, is the, 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 someone down the, around the block who drives a Range Rover is free riding off the person who bought the Prius. 
the person who bought the Prius is free riding off a person who gave up his or car, his or her car altogether and sticks wholly to uh, public transport. One of the massive problems is the w in the world is the extent of free riding among nations. So that, for example, it could happen that the, the European Union, and maybe even the United States under its new leadership, which I'll talk about in a moment, could radically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Well, it wouldn't matter if nobody else in the world did. If China didn't take any action, for example, then it won't make much difference that the European Union and the US radically reduce their emissions. So therefore, people in the European Union and the US tend to say, well, why should we bother? And I've, I, One of my pieces of research, admittedly not a systematic one, is talking to just people I sort of sit next to in the bus about climate change which you know, produces a weird sort of sensation from them but um, many people will say in the UK we can't do anything they seem to know that the UK only produces 2% of global emissions and they say well you know China what can we do with such a small proportion of the world's population well if you generalise that argument obviously everyone will end up doing virtually nothing because everyone will be waiting for everyone else. So I'll come back to free rider problems in a moment because they infect all aspects of, of climate change. Well, that's the scenario for the politics of climate change. What will the impact of recession be on it and how will it interact with energy scarcity and energy futures? Well, briefly put, you can say there, there are three points on either side. There actually are some positives to the interaction between global recession and our need to hold back climate change. And these very briefly are the following. I won't go through them in detail because of the elapsing of time. First of all, um, we do have new leadership in the United States. That leadership could make a dramatic impact in the world community. It coincides with the advent of recession which Obama's leadership has to cope with, but nevertheless, it's a big transformation among the many noxious things associated with the Bush administration, one of the main ones was the disinclination of that administration to do anything, really, concretely, about the very high level of emissions per person, greenhouse gas emissions produced by the United States. No attempt to introduce fuel levies, no attempt to control the impact of the large auto manufacturers, no attempt to control large-scale chemical and coal industries with potentially disastrous consequences for the rest of the world. The US was free riding off all the rest of the world during that period. Well, we do have new leadership and it could, and I hope it will, make a difference. Second, we get a temporary respite during recession because since industrial production is down, therefore greenhouse gas emissions are down not for good reasons, but they are the one necessarily tails the other. So according to Nick Stern, you know, who's the author of the Stern Report, professor at the LSE, a 1% reduction in GDP produces 0.9% reduction in emissions. So if you look at the year 2009, which we're in now, industrial production is expected to fall by something just under 2.5% globally. So you get something like a 2.25 reduction in greenhouse gas emissions this year and that will probably be continued next year but of course it's only a temporary respite. 
Thirdly, perhaps uh, in a way most importantly, recession, as we know from the past, produces innovation. And boy, do we need innovation. You cannot see the possibility of coping with climate change and coping with the associated problem of energy scarcity without massive technological innovation. None of the technologies we have at the moment, with a partial and controversial exception of nuclear power, are anywhere close to standing in for the role of oil, gas and coal in our lives. Coal, incidentally, is a worst, uh, is a worst form of uh, emissions than either um, oil or natural gas are. And there's a real worry that the world could turn back to coal, to coal as oil starts to diminish. So we need innovation. We need breakthroughs. We don't have those breakthroughs. I don't know if you know this, but at the moment only 1%, only 1% of total global energy is produced from renewable sources. Tiny, tiny percentage. If we're going to elevate that, as we need to, to probably 40 to 50% at least globally within 20 or 30 years, you know, we do need innovation. Well, recession, disaster, it could prompt such innovation, and we certainly have to hope so. The negatives, unfortunately, are also quite strong. I'll just trot through those quickly. First of all, in a situation of recession, climate change and energy tend to go on the, black, on the back burner. Many politicians essentially and ordinary people put them out of their minds because they've got more immediate problems to concentrate on. When I'm worried about my next job, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time on trying to change my activity in relation to climate change or energy. Second, second negative, um, the price of oil has dropped radically. As you know, it was about $160 in 2008. Um, it's now down to just over $40. Well, when the price of oil is low, no one does much to change their activities, to economize on heating, for example, or on um, air conditioning, to use their car less or anything like that. So that, again, has a negative effect on, on climate change. And thirdly, also important, in a climate of recession, there isn't much money to spend on alternative technologies. So I've just said that we need innovation, and we do need innovation. We need it massively. But actually, you look around the world, the proportion of money being spent on wind technology, solar technology, other alternative technologies has dropped off quite sharply um, during the early part of 2009. The reason is that as the price of oil drops, so technologies like wind power, for example, become even more uneconomic. Governments have to subsidize them for them to work. And so if you look at this country, two or three big wind farm projects have recently been abandoned because the companies involved say they can't afford them. So recession is likely to have a mixed impact, really, climate change and energy. But in conclusion, I, I, I don't think that we should just draw a, a depressive, pessimistic conclusion from these observations, even though these are really, really, really difficult problems from the world to cope with. So where would you look for really interesting convergences of a positive kind? Freud said that every crisis is a kickstart to the positive side of the personality, 
And I think for every social crisis, you could say the same. So I think what we should be doing is not actually concentrating on whether people stop driving, whether people stop going on airplanes or whatnot. We should have a much more positive approach to climate change and to recovery from recession. And since I've proceeded in threes throughout this lecture, let me mention three main senses in which this is true, in which the impact of recession could be turned to advantage for our attempts to make our civilization sustainable. I would repeat, we live in an unsustainable civilization. We're moving towards a cliff edge. How can we use the impact of recession to mute that movement? Well, three main ways. The first, you could call them short-term, medium-term, long-term. Short-term, I'm very strongly in the favor of programs that have been discussed around the world and particularly pursued by President Obama in the United States of using investment in infrastructure and um, low-carbon technologies as a medium of recovery from recession. Um, President Obama, together with the Center for American Progress, has produced a whole series of interesting publications about how such investment could kickstart or help kickstart recovery from recession. One of my main themes would be we don't want to recover from recession in the same old societies we had before. We don't want these noxious sort of banker people to be running our lives, sure, but we also want a different kind of society ultimately from the oil-based industrial society in which we live as a longer-term objective. Well, what is President Obama doing? He's doing something very interesting. He's proposing to spend $100 billion, um, which I think has now mostly been sanctioned by Congress, although you know it's been difficult, on the following things. First of all, spending money on home insulation. Home insulation, as I mentioned earlier, creates jobs and creates quite low-level jobs. Having a large-scale task force that he proposes for a very... A massive program of home and office insulation could actually create low-level jobs. Very important because poorer people are the most skeptical about climate change. If you can show there's something in producing low-carbon technologies for job creation for poorer people, very, very important. He's proposing tax breaks for wind and solar power, necessary for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Quite substantial tax breaks, very important and interesting. He's proposing to reorganize the electricity grid so that you introduce so-called smart grid in the United States rather than the cumbersome, inefficient national electricity grid they have at the moment. And crucial to yes, he's proposing large-scale investment in trains and in public transport. Um, in the United States, private transport, the use of the car, produces a far higher level of emissions than in any European country, for example. So what you're talking about here actually, I think, is kick-starting a change to the nature of American civilization. Because America is a car-based, mobility-based, profligate civilization, used to spending what it wants, and used to being profligate, not just with energy, but all sorts of other consumer goods. This could be a wedge towards the transformation of that society. And uh, Nick Stern, who I mentioned before, um, who runs a climate change uh, organization or research um, um, institute at the LSE, is pushing for $400 billion 
um, dollars to be spent worldwide on energy innovation of this sort. Crucial is that the US and China get together. China needs American help to reinvent itself as it merges from recession. I don't think this is at all an impossible dream because the Chinese have a very good climate change plan. They recognize the dangers that climate change poses to them. They recognize that now, they didn't before, but now they recognize they cannot recapitulate the same path as Western countries followed in industrializing. They have to industrialize in much more of a low carbon fashion because they're destroying their own environment along the way at the moment. So there is a powerful motivation. If we can achieve it, it won't be easy to use recovery from recession as generating investment which will both help that recovery nationally and worldwide and will trigger a kind of step change if you're talking about tipping points, a kind of tipping point change um, towards a more low uh, carbon based economy. Second, medium term. Medium term we have to recognize we don't want to go back again so I mentioned on point one to the society we've known for the last 30 or so years. No going back to the period of deregulation. But what will replace it? Here I think people like me, other intellectuals, have got a lot of work to do. Because plainly we need more government regulation. Plainly government is going to have a bigger role in our lives than it's had over the past 30 or so years. There will be something like a return to planning planning fell out of favor over the past 30 years during the period of deregulation. And if you look what happened in most countries, in the energy industry, for example, um, there was no investment virtually in energy by the private energy companies who simply creamed off the profits that they could make in, in the short term. For planning for energy, planning for climate change, you need something at least like a 20-year planning cycle. But how will you plan? We don't want to go back to planning in the 1960s, which was inefficient, which was authoritarian, and which was cumbersome. We have to find a way around that. So we have to reinvent government, and we have to reinvent markets. And I would say what, what we must avoid is a movement back towards traditional government on the one hand, because government is not all that good at running economic affairs by and large. We don't really want too much for moving back that way but we don't want to forego the advantage which markets can bring us, including financial markets. If we acted back too much against financial markets, we would not be able to handle problems of climate change. Can I just give you an example to show why? Climate change is very probably happening. It's affecting areas um, probably very significantly like the Caribbean and the southern coast of the United States. Hurricane Katrina may have been influenced by climatic changes affecting that area. Well, as those changes happen, you'll get more intense storms, you'll get more intense hurricanes. Poor people especially, but all people, will have to be insured against the consequences of more extreme weather. Now, what we know from Hurricane Katrina, and what we know more generically, is that the state will not be able to provide more than bare minimum of that insurance the state simply is not able to cover the costs involved, which are gigantic actually for tornado and hurricane related damage. Therefore, most of the damage will have to be handled by private insurance companies and the private insurance industry, 
And what we need to do is to try to ensure that that industry can think long term and can handle these things. And there are some really interesting innovations going on within that industry. For example, the insurance company Allianz has pioneered catastrophe bonds, which are 10-year bonds, which are sold on financial markets and which do offer very substantial protection, especially to poorer people in relation to the effects of climate change. So we can progressively, I think, envisage a new kind of relationship between state and economy which could be very positive for all of us and could, uh, could produce very effective social outcomes different from the period of regulation in which we've just emerged. Finally, thirdly, we've got to think really long term again, I believe. And I believe we're entering a period which I would describe as the end of the end of history. You know, the end of history was the idea that we've reached, as it were, the culminating point of human civilization. If you study climate change, you study energy, you, you, I think, certainly come to the conclusion this is false. Because our society is unsustainable, it cannot be the final form of society in human history. So I think we've got to return to more innovative thinking. I think we've perhaps even got to include a dash of utopianism in our thinking. We've got to ask, what kind of economy will a low-carbon economy be? What kind of society will it bring in its train? How can we maximize the benefits of those transformations? Because plainly, a society which is, let's say, is based on the durability of products rather than a throwaway society. A society which is based on a more organized transit system rather than the dominance of the private car. A society which is sensitive towards our activities and their impact on the environment in urban areas is gonna look different from the kind of society in which we live today. I think, therefore, we need a new period of adventurous thinking about the future, and this all could be positive. And that brings me back, finally, to Fred the Shred, um, Fred Goodwin and his £693,000 a year, which, at the moment, he's seemingly refusing to give back to the people who paid for it, viz. the taxpayer, the public, well, Fred the Shred, if you're not going to give your money back, please at least set up a research institute which will help us understand what a low-carbon society will be like. Thank you very much for your attention. about 15 minutes for points uh, well, You're not going to start. I thought you were going to criticise me to oh, begin I, with. I, I'm not. No, I want the hall to criticise you. A lady okay. over there. Somebody got a mic? Where? Where are you pointing? There. there. You can't, you know, I'm a member of the current government, but you can't trust it on climate change for the reason you said. I mean, government policy to me is contradictory on climate change. For, I feel for much the reasons I identify, that is, politicians 
produce rhetoric about climate change, but on the ground they make different decisions. So, therefore, I'm against the expansion of Heathrow. I'm against the building of a, a new coal-fired power station at King's North. And I think the government here is not doing what it should be doing in trying to capture public attention either because, I mean, you know, we don't know how effective President Obama will be, but look what he's done in America. Look at the speech he gave the other day, which was a kind of, you know, positive, rousing speech. I mean, Gordon Brown is not giving speeches like that. He's not saying, he's not saying look, we're going to spend a lot of money on innovation in our response to the recession. He's talking mainly about his problems with Fred the Shred, I suppose. Well, problems with banks, anyway. And so I think, you know, this, is the, this results from the dilemmas that I discussed earlier. You don't find many governments who are really prepared to go on the line to deal with the problems we face. Therefore, you, you say who you trust on climate change. Well, you know, I think we're going to have to have a range of strategies. Personally, I think some of these strategies probably have to move through energy rather than climate change directly because the price of oil is probably going to spike immediately there's a recovery from recession it may go up to $200 a barrel we should be anticipating that and you know at that point we're going to have to make innovations in the energy system so um, I do, you know there is no single agency you can trust however climate change is a kind of minefield you can't necessarily trust um, third sector groups either because they're interest groups um, for example I studied the wind power industry well all sorts of exaggerated claims are made by the industry which if you took them seriously you would be seriously misled about what it can achieve so you are in a kind of minefield I'm afraid and you have to work your way through it for best, better or for worse but I think the state and politics will be very important in it and Therefore, I think we have to keep the pressure up on politicians to provide real leadership. And I suppose my main hope in the moment is that President Obama might sort of kick change, kick start a change worldwide as other political leaders follow his example if he's successful. Can I take someone on this side of the... Yes, the here, gentleman here. In the middle. WTO, do you? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm very strongly in favour of that idea, but sceptical about whether it could be realised. I, I think we should certainly push for it, and it, in principle it would be a crucial conjunction. But first of all, we know it hasn't proved possible to reach an agreement for the Doha round in uh, world trade agreements, so therefore you've got segmentation and bilateral agreements. And second, international agreements on climate change don't often add up to a great deal, it has to be said. So when you try and bring the two together, important though it is, I think you have to be a bit cautious and sceptical about how successful it will be, and therefore you have to work on other areas too. And I feel the same about the negotiations in Copenhagen due to happen next year, following up from Kyoto. It would be great if we could reach effective agreement which could be implemented, but I'm very cautious about whether the world community will, and therefore in the meantime, 
we're going to have to get on with a lot of other initiatives. You can't just wait around for Copenhagen. You can't wait around for what you're saying. It will be one element in a much wider program of initiatives and objectives, in my opinion. Don't you think on that, Tony, there's a bit of a danger, a danger of climate change protectionism? You know, the, the great plus of Obama is that, uh, is that he wants to do something about climate change, and America's going to be motivated to do it. Europe is keen, uh, but if they see that, uh, that India and China are not prepared to uh, follow suit, uh, what you're going to get is a lot of protectionist pressure from people like Sarkozy and uh, in the Congress. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly, a perfectly possible scenario, I think. I think that, personally, I think there is a way to try to stop that scenario, which I give quite a lot of attention to in my book on it anyway, which is that the more you can show that environmentally progressive policy is actually economically advantageous, the more you can show that large corporations who are progressive in environmental terms actually prosper at the expense of those who are not, the more you can hope to make a breakthrough from that situation. But in the short term, we, we plainly see the potential for the revival of protectionism everywhere, and that could overlap in a negative way with climate change policy. That's completely true. But I do think, you know, a lot of effort should be put in by the Americans and the Chinese to reach some kinds of binding agreements, in, including transfer of technology from the United States to China, because the US and China, as you know, and as we've studied in the project extensively, produce something like half of total global emissions. So if those two countries are not making the necessary changes, then the rest of the world is lost anyway. I think, again, most people here will know that the Chinese are building something like two coal-fired power stations every week. You know, very hard to judge how accurate that statement is, but as sort of generically said in the literature, whatever the true number is, the, the more you get um, coal as a means of creating energy, the more dangerous the situation is for us. So we need quite a lot of bilateral agreements, I think, as well as international agreements, really, and especially that between China and the U.S., which is not going to be easy yeah. because they could become, you know, opponents and rivals as they are at the moment rather than collaborators. So nothing in this field is easy, and nothing in this field really quite relates to the seriousness of the threats that we face, at least at the moment. Tony, let's take a question from this side of the hall here, this gentleman here. Thanks a lot. It was a wonderful, as always, very inspiring speech by you. Uh, my question is, you have said that we need to reinvent the government and, you know, like, the society. But do you also think that perhaps we need to reinvent the individual as well? That, for example, when you think about, you know, Freddie Shred, he actually said about this, you know, entitlement, this pension, he said that he wasn't just legally entitled to it, but that he actually had a moral right to that as well. And it's actually, you can actually relate that to the climate change and also energy as well. Trying to rise to the top without a single consideration, you know, for the externalities that you may be causing for society at large, and could we perhaps try to instill a sense of duty into the individual in this moral setting that he or she starts thinking that he actually is responsible towards one another as well? For example, in climate change, for example, my wife like here in London or Amsterdam is flooded, and I can become very rich and buy a house on top of a mountain, for example. Well, that's, that's free riding, yeah. Change in the moral fabric of the individual as well, 
Well, I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting comment, but I would diverge from it a bit because I don't think it's really a matter of the individual, and it's the moral component I think that's important there because um, let's stop talking about individuals in case I get sued, but the person who we were talking about before, um, <laughs> well, he's not doing that just as an individual, is he? He belonged to a certain culture. And that culture was a culture of, of banking which seemed to insist that the earnings and the motivations of those who drive the system at the top carry no obligations to those further down. So that he seems to feel, you know, contrary to what you imagine, I would have thought anyone who ran an organization would feel moral responsibility towards his or her employees or others in the organization. But that kind of banking culture seems indifferent to that sort of morality. So. I think as we move beyond the age of deregulation, we have to move also beyond that kind of moral position. And therefore, yes, it does involve a, a return to some kind of idea of, of moral duty or, or recognition that one is part of a larger system that one has obligations to. And I feel tax havens are another example of that because tax havens are a way in which money is laundered around the world and most of that money should be spent as, as the revenue from taxation which will be spent in principle for social purposes for the benefit of the wider social community so I'm very strongly in favour of what now seems to be a resurgent impulse to regulate tax havens and close them down because they're all bound up with that kind of morality you're talking about I think it's like, you know, it's like a morality of parallel universes where you live in a universe, it doesn't seem strange to you that some person who's brought a gigantic organization to its knees should be given some massive payoff for that outcome. I mean, it's a different universe, isn't it, from the one which most of the rest of the population belongs to, and surely we have to reunite those universes. So I'm not really blaming an individual. I think it's part of a, an overall culture which we have to try and ensure will change in the future. And I think financial markets should not have the level of control over our lives they had over the last 30 or so years. The problem will be to achieve that without sacrificing some of the elements of what markets can do for us that we do need to sustain, as I described, and that's not going to be too easy a task, I think. But I agree we need a kind of moral change, really, in the leadership of certainly those at the top of uh, business and, and, and financial markets, yes. Question at the back. Lady third along there, is that right? Thank you. Hi. Um, how can we reconcile development and catch up growth in developing countries with the need to protect the environment, considering that developing countries already have a very limited policy space and resources, and what's the role of industrialized country, countries in this? Well, the situation with the developing world at the moment is that there is a, a mechanism built into the Kyoto Agreements um, which supposedly ensures a transfer of money from the developed to the developing countries known as the Clean Development Mechanism. That's built into the world trading emissions uh, system whereby you can um, escape paying some of the uh, money you have to pay if you're a business by investing in technologies that will help developing countries and those technologies are supposed to be environmentally advanced technologies but the clean development mechanism has not really worked very well everybody acknowledges that 
so there's not enough being done as usual on the part of the developed world to help the developing world we have to find a much more effective mechanism than the clean development mechanism for the next stage of of uh, international negotiations and my feeling is we have to have a lot of more bilateral help for the reasons I mentioned I think the industrial part of the world should recognize that what happens in the poorer countries in respect of climate change is going to affect their future not just the future of the poorer countries it produces all sorts of um, terrible social and economic deprivation which is bound to refract back on the industrial countries therefore the industrial world in principle should do far more and it should be geared above all to uh, low carbon technologies and the skills to invest and maintain those low, car low carbon um, structures but again you know we operate in the world which we operate in in which the, the industrial countries dominate world institutions the developing countries don't have the voice they should have and in which um, things are systematically loaded against them and that's going to be difficult to overcome but we do have to strive to do it should we make this well, the last we're coming question? Coming up to the maybe? end, yes. Um, final couple of points. Shall we take two and together, and then you uh, there and there? Okay. Professor Giddens, um, you spoke about uh, the way that Obama has realigned the economic and climate narratives in the U.S. and the fact that that hasn't really happened in the U.K. or in Europe or in other countries. Um, Gordon Brown gave a speech at Davos, which was, I think, quite an important one, but rather underreported, in which he spoke about the need for a low-carbon recovery and said that we can't return to business as usual and we need to be investing in renewables and so on. Um, but he hasn't said that on the same sort of level as Obama has. Um, and I get the sense that both in the UK and in Europe, there's a desire from politicians to try to recreate that kind of political... Um, change that Obama has done in the US, but not quite the confidence to do it. In April, we have a gathering of world leaders in London um, where uh, the G20 members will be coming together. And I don't know if we have time to do this, but it strikes me that what we should be doing as students, citizens, activists, intellectuals, is calling on those world leaders to put this agenda on the table and to say, we're not just here to talk about banking and financial regulation, but also to talk about how we get out of this business as usual trajectory and how we do something to create a low carbon future. Thank you. And that gentleman there. Hi. Uh, thank you for your speech. Um, I, in, in the medium term and in, in the medium long term sense, what would the firm's uh, incentive be or what are you proposing as, as a solution to firms where I mean, most of the solutions that you propose are, are based on individuals, based on government making regulations. Now, why would the firm, when their uh, survival is at imminent risk, be interested? Or, I mean, what should the people or the government do in order to provide some incentives or, or, or to the firms so that they take part in this uh, climate uh, crisis? Yeah, thank you. Both very good um, questions and observations. Um, in relation to the first one, I mean, my feeling is, you know, there's something sort of really odd going on in world society because the world's been kind of waiting for Obama. Why? Why so much? I mean, why is, there no, why is it not possible to have other sources of leadership in world society? Why did we all have to wait around for Obama? Especially when people at the same time are saying that American power has declined and the world has become more multipolar. It's a bit odd, that I think. But, you know, you're quite right, I think, to say that 
European politicians and other politicians elsewhere are not themselves able to capture the dynamism that Obama has managed to do, that possibly European countries are not as dynamic as the United States anyway in responding to change. And certainly you couldn't see like a black leader coming from nowhere in a European country to, to become the leader of that country. So that's all the backdrop to it. I mean, my feeling Gordon Brown does have a heart in the right place, um, but he hasn't managed to bring this to the public. He hasn't, as I was saying in response to an earlier question, he hasn't generated enthusiasm. I mean, he's not a man, I suppose, to generate enthusiasm, really. Uh, you know, he, he's not, but nevertheless, that's what you need. I mean, my, the theme of my lecture really was that you have to look for positives. You've got to look for things that actually motivate people. You look, you've got to look for positive values. You can't just expect people to give up things and um, simply suppose that will cope with climate change because that's why you need to drive a quite a lot through an energy revolution, I think. Well, G20 could make quite an impact on that. You know, this is probably the most important G20 meeting that's ever been held, I think. So it would be interesting to see what the outcome is in terms of concrete measures. Um, but, you know, we just don't know whether other countries will be able to mobilize in the same way that Obama seems to be doing. But, of course, Obama himself is, you know, as yet relatively untested. And can he drive through the revolution which he wants? If he can, I think other societies will have to copy it. And that will be my answer to the second question in some part. I think, um, you know, as far as businesses are concerned... I think those of us who are interested in these issues and want to act politically in relation to them, we shouldn't be just going around blaming the big corporations for anything, even, you know, even when they, they should be blamed, well, yes, sometimes of course, but we also want their leadership, I feel. So we want to convert the leaders of, of big companies to the view that if they act progressively, they will in fact be more successful, not less successful. And, uh, you know, having talked to quite a lot of business leaders and done quite a lot of research on it, I think it's becoming more and more the case. You know, I think there could be a convergence with political leadership and business leadership, at least in the best scenario, whereby the best business leaders, more far-sighted business leaders, will see what's going to happen as the world moves out of recession, will see that we may be creating a new society here, and will see big business opportunities in that kind of movement. I think that's very, very possible at least under a, a positive scenario, very, very possible. So one of the things I'm trying to do, and Roger is policy network very strongly um, in the future will push for, I think, is to get like a vanguard of business leaders who are very prominent nationally who will say, look, we all have to change. Look, this is what we're going to do. Look, this is where the business opportunities lie. Look, this is where we should work with government. This is, you know, we need some inspiration too but also at the same time we could help to pioneer a new world and it may come to nothing or it may be a vanguard of change which, which could be transformative. Well, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Roger, for your eminent chairing and have a good day, everybody.